we are in the book of James. We're still in the book of James. We've been in the book of James forever. Um, and it feels like we've like really like, you know, slowed the pace down. We're kind of limping to the finish line of James. So we've got two and a half verses today. That's what Tucker has assigned to me. Two and a half verses of James chapter five, right before the end of it, uh, that we want to look at today. Now, before we look at that text, um, how many of you have heard the phrase, the power of prayer? All right, good, handful of you. How many of you have heard that uh, prayer changes things? Good, good, good. How many, how many of you uh, have heard that God answers prayer? Good, good. Now, how many of you believe it? Okay, good. We got a few people here that believe that God actually answers prayer, that prayer is powerful, and God does some things when you, when you pray. James believes that. He believes this, that prayer is powerful, uh, that prayer changes things, that God answers prayer. And James doesn't just believe it, he believes it so fully that he actually practices it. He practiced it, practiced it so completely that James has actually acquired a bit of a nickname. Anyone know James's nickname? James has acquired this nickname among at least some people familiar with it. He's acquired the nickname Camel Knees. Why? Well, because an early church writer describing James, the James who wrote this letter, uh, describing his prayer life says that James spent so much time on his knees worshiping God and praying for his church family and praying for their walk with God and praying for their forgiveness of sins and interceding to God their behalf that he spent so much time on his knees, this is what the early church father said was, his knees became hard like camels. So he had hard camel knees, and hence James is known as camel knees. And, and here's what that tells us. James isn't just writing nice words to us in James chapter 5 about prayer. James believed this, what he's about to tell us. And he wants you to believe it. He wants me to believe what he writes in this moment, all right? So let's listen to what James says about prayer. James chapter 5, verse 16, middle of the verse. We're picking up halfway through. It says this, the effective prayer of a righteous man, a righteous person, can accomplish much. Um, and you may be reading a different translation than what's on the screen or what I have in front of me, and if you are, you'll notice there's pretty significant differences between translations, just in word order. Not in the point, but in the word order. And the reason for that is this, is that there's two words in the original text that the scholars are trying to figure out how to put together in the sentence. One of the words is just strong, like prayer is strong. It's powerful. The other word is um, when working. Like prayer is strong when working, which seems to imply that in order for prayer to work, you have to work a prayer. Right? Like, prayer's got, you got to be doing it in order for prayer to be strong. And so the, the translators are just trying to figure out, how do we put all those words together? So that's why there's some variety in the translation. But the point is clear, isn't it? The point is that prayer works. Prayer is a legitimate, a real way to make things happen in this world. There's other ways we can make things happen in this world, but one of the ways you or I can actually make things happen in this world is through prayer, by praying. Prayer has the power to change things and make things happen. In fact, 
uh, in the original language, like in Greek, you can kind of just throw words out there in whichever order you kind of want to because word order isn't so important. But if you wanted to emphasize something, one of the ways to do it was to put a word at the very beginning of the sentence. And in the original language, the word that's at the very beginning of the sentence in this sentence here is the word much. Because James wants us to know prayer isn't just a little bit powerful. Prayer doesn't just cause a few things every now and then. Prayer can accomplish much, a lot. And James believes that. And he wants you and I to believe that. And in order to support that claim, then, James goes on and gives an example, an example from the Bible. Uh, it's an example that from a story in the Old Testament. If you want to read the whole story, you can read it in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. It's a story from the, the days of Israel, about 800 years before Jesus. Israel was in a state of spiritual decline. Um, the nation was wandering away from God, forgetting God's ways, forgetting God's laws, not walking with God. The nation was worshiping the uh, false gods of the, the nations around them, uh, Baal, Moloch, Asherah, and all these false gods. And so the, na the nation of Israel was in this state of apostasy. So God raises up a prophet, a prophet by the name of Elijah. And James is going to give an example from Elijah's ministry where where Elijah's trying to call Israel back to being faithful to God. And so he recalls this episode from Elijah's life that's recorded in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Here's what James says, verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. In other words, he was an ordinary human being, right? Like you and me. He was just a normal person that God raised up to be a prophet. And here's what happened. Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain for three and a half years. And then, verse 18, Elijah prayed again after three and a half years. Uh, and the, the sky poured rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, what you got to understand is that Israel, in 800 years B.C., is an agricultural society. And, and it's dependent specifically on where it's located. It depends on the early rains and the late rains in order to grow crops. So if there are no rains, there's no, there's no crops, which means there's no food. Um, and so as part of God trying to call the nation of Israel back to himself, um, he, he basically tasked Elijah, look, pray that it won't rain. We're going to use that hopefully as a call to repentance to the nation. Elijah prays, and it didn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Then after three and a half years, he prays again, and it rains. And here's what strikes me in the way James has word of this. He says that this happened when Elijah prayed, and Elijah is just an ordinary human being. He's just a person like you and me. He's normal, right? He's, he's nothing special, nothing superhuman, nothing like, like he's just a normal human being. And he prayed, and it didn't rain. I don't know about you, that's, that's never happened for me. And I've tried. I've tried. I, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. It rains a lot. And as a, a little boy, right, like my grandpa would be planning a fishing trip, and, and 
there was a good possibility it could get rained out. So as a little church-going boy, right, what do I do? God, I want to go fishing with Grandpa. Please don't let it rain. You know how many fishing trips got rained out? It didn't work. Right? Like, I tried in my ordinary normal self, and it didn't work for me. Now, as I, I grew older in my walk with God and got to know God more, here's the thing. I, I've prayed plenty of other prayers that didn't work, too. Like, there were things that, like, deeply burdensome to my soul. Prayers as like, things that... From, from as best as I could tell, reading scripture and discerning the situation seemed like something God would be interested in doing. Things that matter deeply to me that if God could answer them, it would surely be for my good. And it seemed like it would be for God's glory. Like real deep, meaningful prayers. I've prayed them. And guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. You? Ever happened to you? Have you ever... Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed and it seemed like heaven was silent and your reaction was, God, where the heck are you? And you begin to wonder, maybe it doesn't work. Anybody? How many have ever wondered, been discouraged or doubted if prayer actually works? Good, good. You guys are more honest than first service. <clears throat> Because first service did about five or six people were brave and raise your hands. The reality is, we were all really eager to raise our hand and say, I believe that God answers prayer. Why? Because that's acceptable to say in church. That's what we're supposed to believe and supposed to say. But to say, sometimes I wonder if it doesn't. We're a little more timid and we're a little more slow to raise our hand, aren't we? Because we often don't talk about that. Um, but the fact is, is, God doesn't always answer our prayers. He doesn't always do what we ask. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is I just want to explore that with you for a few minutes and think about that and reflect on that in view of what James says here, that prayer is powerful and strong and does much, right? And when James says that, the first thing he does to try to encourage us to believe that is he gives us a biblical example, he gives us an, a story from Scripture, the story of Elijah. There were other stories James could have chosen. For example, another story from the Old Testament is the story of King Hezekiah. Uh, you can read the story in 2 Kings chapter 20 or Isaiah 38. It's the same story told in two different places, one from Isaiah's perspective and one from Hezekiah's perspective because it involved both of them. Here's what happened. Um, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and says, go tell Hezekiah that his... His number is up, his day is done, he's going to die. So Isaiah goes to Hezekiah, tells him, God says, you're going to die. Well, Hezekiah, probably like most of us would in that situation, Hezekiah responds by praying. Uh, Isaiah turns, leaves the palace. Hezekiah falls on his face before the Lord and begins to pray, Lord, I don't want to die. And before Isaiah gets off the palace grounds, God says to Isaiah, all right, turn around, go back, and tell him I'm going to give him 15 more years. That's a pretty quick answer to prayer, right? And James could have pulled that one. 
Another biblical example that James maybe could have used, it wasn't at his time, it wasn't written down in Scripture, but it was something James was familiar with. It was an experience James knew. It happened in Acts chapter 12. And James at that point was living in and ministering in the church at Jerusalem. And this is where it happened, in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, uh, the king of the Jews, King Agrippa, uh, really is not a fan of Christianity. And the Jewish leadership is not a fan of Christianity. And Christianity has been growing and affecting the city. So Agrippa decides to see if he can't kind of maybe help dissuade the Christians, maybe get rid of Christianity. So he arrests the Apostle Peter, who's one of the main spokesmen, um, puts Apostle Peter in jail. Um, and here's what happens. You can read it, Acts chapter 12. Um, it's, it's the night before Peter's going to be executed, I don't know why God has a flair for the dramatic. Peter had been in jail for several nights. God could have done this any of the nights, two nights before, three nights before. It's the middle of the night, just hours before Herod's plan is to take Peter out of jail and cut his head off. And as Peter, and Peter's sleeping, which tells you something about Peter, he's sleeping between two guards in his prison cell when all of a sudden God sends an angel into the prison cell. Peter's chains drop off. Um, the doors open. The angel escorts Peter out of the prison. And then all of a sudden the angel disappears. Peter's like, whoa, that really did happen. And he's in the middle of the city. And here's what Acts tells us. Acts says immediately, Peter went to the house where the church was gathered and was praying there. So the church is gathered in the middle of the night and praying for Peter, who's about to be executed, and God answers their prayer in a dramatic fashion by sending an angel to break Peter out of jail. That's a pretty good answer to prayer, right? Um, and when you read the entire Bible from cover to cover, beginning to end, here's the entire testimony of Scripture is that not just in examples, but in teaching and in commands, the entire testimony of Scripture is that we live in a world where God is accessible to us and we are accessible to God, where whatever wall or veil there is between uh, our world and God's world, between heaven and earth, it's not a thick wall. God can reach through that wall anytime he wants. God could step through that wall or send an angel through that wall anytime he wants. That's the entire testimony of Scripture. And that's why Jesus makes some pretty incredible statements about prayer. Right? Like, you need to believe that there is a God who can do what you ask him to do. Um, and James believes that. And so that's the place to begin. If we're going to really wrestle with, do we believe, really believe prayer works in those moments of doubt and discouragement when it seems like the heavens are silent and we want to know, does, does, is this true? We need to begin where James begins, with Scripture, right? And, and the story of Scripture and the stories within Scripture and the teaching of Scripture that the wall between heaven and earth is not thick, but it's thin. And God can answer and does answer and interacts with this world. That's where we begin. But that's not the only thing. Um, the, the, the other thing we need to think about as we reflect on this is just the experience of answered prayer. Have you had prayers answered in your life? Yeah, me too. I've had some pretty dramatic answers to prayer in my life. I have seen God do things where I asked and things happened, right? Right? that God really does answer prayer. 
And we need to remember those things. We like probably should record those things, write them down or in some way transcript so that we can go back and review. So when it seems like the heavens are silent, we can actually go back and say, well, right now maybe it's silent, but it wasn't here and it wasn't here and it wasn't here. Right? Like God really does answer prayer. Let me share a few just from my own experience. Um, about 15 years ago, my, my son and I decided to do a one-night camping trip uh, on the Middle Fork of the Boise River. And my son at that time was about 9 or 10, and we were, we were a good, I, if I remember correctly, we were a good five miles beyond Twin Springs. So any of you familiar with the Middle Fork, that's where we were at. We were way up, like, we were way up the road. At that point, you're 30-something miles off of Highway 21. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell coverage, right? You're like, Deep, deep, deep up the Middle Fork Road, which if you've ever driven that road, it's not a pleasant road to drive, right? You're way up there. So there we are, way up there. We fished. We camped overnight. We woke up in the morning. We had our breakfast. Our plan is to get in the truck and to drive our way out. It was a borrowed truck, ironically borrowed from a friend of mine who was a mechanic. Um, We go to the pickup truck and realize it's got a flat tire. No trouble. He's a mechanic friend of mine. There's got to be a spare. Sure enough, there was a spare. So I'll just put the spare on. We'll load up our gear, and we'll fish our way out. Here's the problem. He's a mechanic. Mechanics do crazy things, and so he'd put non-stock oversized tires on the truck. So I go to grab the jack and the lug wrench, and the lug wrench that's in the truck does not fit the lug nuts that's on the car. I'm stranded. We're like miles from anywhere, no cell coverage. It's a Tuesday. And this is 15 years ago before everyone was driving the Middle Fork Road. Right? Like, and, and so I tell my son, son, our, our only option at this point is to pray. So son and I pray, Lord, we're in a kind of a bad situation. Um, we need somehow to get out of here. Best option would be you send somebody with a lug wrench that fits our lug nuts. So we pray, amen. I tell Jeff, my son, um, why don't you go take the bucket, get some water out of the river, douse the fire so that we can get ready to go. So he walks down to the river, is on his way back to the fire, when the only pickup truck we saw all day, the only pickup truck begins coming down the road. I run in the road, flag him down, he pulls into our campsite, I tell him our situation. Dude, we're kind of stuck. We've got a flat tire, and our lug wrench does not fit our lug nuts. So he says, well, let's see if I can help. He pulls out his lug wrench. It fits our lug nuts. We changed our flat tire. We loaded up our gear. My son and I fished our way out. That's a pretty good answer to prayer, and it's a pretty quick answer to prayer. Like, like we didn't have a whole lot of options, and we didn't see a single other pickup truck all day. Um, and, and we were hours from anywhere. And God answered our prayer for a lug wrench. That's pretty good. Another one. Um, when, when I was teaching at the college, there was a period where my wife and I used to have college students over for dinner every Tuesday night. Little known secret, back in those days, the cafeteria at BBC was not very good. So to help the students out and give them a home-cooked meal, we just open house style. Whoever wants to come, come to our house on Tuesday night, we'll cook dinner. We, we averaged about 25 to 30 students every Tuesday night for dinner at our house for about four years. Um, after four years of having college students over to our house, the furniture was falling apart. 
Like, right, and you pack that many. Our house was small, right? They would, you know, you'd pack on a couch that's only supposed to sit three, there'd be six, right? Like, they just pack in there, eating their food. Um, and so our furniture's falling apart. Literally, springs are coming out of the bottom of the couches. It's just everything's falling apart. It's not looking good. We work at a small Bible college. They don't pay super well. We don't have much money for new furniture. That's the situation. We desperately need new couches, but there's not a whole lot in the budget. Plus, we have small kids at home. So... Um, my wife and I, on a Saturday night, we had, we had been, this will, this will tell you, this was a while back, right? Uh, we actually were looking through, like, the, the old school classified in the newspapers to find cheap couches, right? This is, like, early days, maybe even before Craigslist. So we're trying to, you know, no, there's no couch. I mean, even the used ones are, like, you know, 100 or 200 bucks. We don't have 100 or 200 dollars. So we pray, Lord. We, we're trying to serve you the best we can. We don't have a whole lot of money. We need new couches desperately. All we got to spend is $50. It'd be great if you could help us out here. It's so Saturday night. Sunday morning, phone rings. It's my mom. Has the, Hello? Hey, son, how you doing? Good. Do you need any couches? <laughs> Literally, that was her question. Mom, yes, we do. We just prayed about it last night. Well, my job has transferred me to Nashville, and we've, we've got to get, you know, get rid of some stuff and downsize before we make the move. If you and your brother, because we've got some stuff for your brother too, if you want to, want to come up here, you can have the couches and whatever other furniture you need. Borrowed a pickup truck from the maintenance guy at the college with a trailer, drove to Tacoma, Washington, and uh, loaded up the couches and some patio furniture and some other stuff drove back to Boise, food and gas was about 50 bucks. That's a pretty good answer to prayer, right? Um, other ones took longer. When I was a freshman in college, my mom uh, remarried my stepdad. She, she decided to get married again. She married my stepdad, and he wasn't a believer. Now, when you're 19 years old and you try to give your mom marriage advice, Right, like, Mom, you, you love Jesus. He doesn't love Jesus. This is not the way it's supposed to work. You should know better, right? But, but moms don't listen usually to their 19-year-old kids. So she didn't listen, so she married him. Um, and for the next 17 years, we all prayed for Gary. All of us in the family prayed for Gary. Um, inch by inch, step by step. Well, at least when John's preaching, I'll go to church. So I'd come to church. 17 years, we prayed and prayed and prayed. Sometimes we didn't pray very fervently because it didn't seem like anything was happening. He was still cranky and, right? But after 17 years, Gary finally surrendered and chose to follow Jesus, right? It's a long time, but the Lord answered. Now, I'm sure if I gave you the microphone, you could tell some stories of some answered prayer, true? The Lord has worked in your life. You've seen some things. There's big things, dramatic things, right? Things are like, that was obvious. There's things that seem a little more subtle, but it's clearly what you were wanting God to do. Little things, right? We all have this experience where it's clear that God is working in our circumstances, hearing our prayers, and doing things we asked. Is it not? God does that. And so Scripture and experience tells us that what James says is true. Prayer works. It changes things. It accomplishes things, right? Both, both scripture and experience tell us that. But experience also tells us what? God doesn't always. God doesn't always do what we want him to do, right? God doesn't always answer our prayers. 
God doesn't always hear in the sense of he does what we ask him to do, does he? My first encounter with this, I was, again, a freshman in college, you know, going to BBC. I'm going to study for ministry. Um, it's like my second or third or fourth week. It's like I'm maybe halfway through the fir- my first semester. Like, I'm a, I'm a freshman, rot Bible college. I'm just dating Louise, who later became my wife, right? And I'm over at her parents' house after church on a Sunday afternoon, um, and we're having lunch. And in the middle of the afternoon, my now father-in-law, Uh, gets a phone call. He was the pastor at the church we were attending. He gets a phone call um, from a family in the church. And if you uh, were living in Boise in uh, 1987, you may remember that around October, November of that year, there was a big plane crash in Denver. This gal's husband and 12-year-old son were on that plane. She had been praying for a safe flight. She'd been praying for a safe flight. He died. Her husband died in that plane crash. And where she at, her 12-year-old son was literally laying on top of his dad when his dad took his last breath in the wreckage of the plane. And Bruce and I went to go sit with the family, hold their hand, and try to love them the best we could. They they were faithful to Jesus. These were people that were serving the Lord in church, right? They, They loved the Lord deeply, and they prayed honestly. They didn't get the answer they wanted. They didn't get a safe flight that day. They got a dead husband and a dead father. That's hard. So God hears our prayers. God does what we ask, but not always. Not always. And we need to be honest about that. When we read texts like this, or when we read the promises of Jesus, we need to be honest that God doesn't always do what we ask him to do. But let me ask you a question. Is there a a chance that God's smarter than you? Is there a chance that God can see things you can't see? Is there a chance that God might actually hear your prayer and think, I don't think that's really the best thing for you. Is that possible? Is it it possible that maybe God hears your prayer and, and is like, well, I appreciate that, but I got something bigger in mind than that. Is that possible? But it's gonna cost you something. Is it possible that God might actually be working on answering whatever you're praying. It's just taking a while. Is that possible? In other words, does unanswered prayer mean that God does not answer prayer? No. It just means that God might actually have something else in mind. God might actually know what's better for you. God might actually have something else he's doing that's bigger and greater than what we have in mind. Like, God might actually know best. Is that possible? And here's what that means for you and for me when we talk about this. That, that prayer's not mechanical. Like, prayer's not magic, right? You know how magic works. 
magic works. You, you say the right thing, right? You go through the right words. You say the right incantation. You go through the right formula. And presto, changeo, rearrangeo, right? And you get whatever it is you're supposed to get out of the magic thing. You rub the, the, the magic lamp and the genie appears and you get your three wishes, right? Prayer's not that. Prayer's not magic where, like, there's just, we just go through the right formula, we say the right words, we do it the right way, and we can automatically expect to get exactly what we want. Prayer's not that. And, and not only that, prayer's not like a vis- vending machine. Like, you know, your great cosmic vending machine in the sky where if you just put in the right amount of money, you punch the right buttons, you're going to get exactly what you want. That's not prayer. Prayer doesn't work that way. Um, so when we read like James chapter 5 or even some of the promises of Jesus and we think about prayer, we have to remember it's not mechanical. It's not exact. We're not going to get everything we ask for. It doesn't work that way. Uh, in fact, James himself in James 4 tells us, he says like, like you don't have because you don't ask. So the first thing we need to do is just ask. Then James says, follows that up with, Sometimes you ask and you don't get because you're asking badly. Selfish motives, you're asking for the wrong things, right? Like, like, we don't always know, in other words, why God doesn't answer our prayer, but we should ask. And we should actually trust that God knows best, that God's smarter than us. He can see more than us. He's more faithful than we realize. And so if he says no then there's got to be a good reason for it. Do we believe that? Do we believe, not just that God answers prayer, that he answers the prayers he thinks he should answer? A couple classic examples of like unanswered prayer where maybe God saw more than we saw. One of the most well-known from recent Christian history is the example of Jim Elliott and the other... uh, the other missionaries who were martyred in Ecuador in January of 1956, right? Like Jim Elliott and the guys, they had planned for years. They had prayed for years. They hadn't just prayed, they had fasted and prayed for years that God would open a way to the Hurani Indians. They knew them as the Akas. We now know that they prefer to be called the Huranis, right? So they prayed and fasted and prayed and fasted and planned and worked. And then God opened a door, it seemed, Um, And they began having friendly contacts with these Indians who had no presence of Jesus, no knowledge of Jesus, and had never had any friendly contact with white folk. And it seemed God was opening the door and answering their prayers. And so they proceeded with their plan, with prayer and fasting and their wives praying and fasting. And then in January 1956, in in what they believed was going to be their first good encounter where they could make inroads into this tribe, the Indians killed them all on the banks of the river in Ecuador. God, where the heck are you? Five young husbands killed, leaving behind five missionary wives in the jungles of Ecuador. Five young dads with small children at home, killed, leaving behind nine kids without fathers. They had prayed. They had fasted. They had prayed and fasted some more. And it seemed like the Lord was answering their prayers. And they were killed. 
God, where are you? And yet, if you're familiar with the story, two years later, nearly to the day, two years later, Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth Elliott, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, were invited by the very tribe that had killed the men to come and live with them. And they moved in among the Hurani Indians and began to just kind of incarnate Jesus among them as they tried to learn the language and do the best they could to kind of get to know them and hopefully share the gospel with them. And in the course of time, uh, as you read the story, nearly everyone in that tribe came to faith in Jesus. Um, But it came at a cost. But God had something bigger and better in mind than what they had all prayed for previously. Did God answer their prayers? Well, yes, just not the way they prayed them because their heart's desire was for the Hurani to come to faith in Jesus. And they did. And that's what they wanted. And you know what's fascinating about that? One of the, when, when you listen to the Indians begin to tell uh, Elizabeth and Rachel, what drew them? Why, why were they willing to invite them? And why were they curious about the gospel story? Well, here's why. Because the five missionaries actually had guns on them. The Indians are attacking with wooden spears. What's going to win? Guns or wooden spears? But the, the missionaries had decided we will not use our weapons on the Indians. And so if they attack, we won't defend ourselves with guns. So they shot the guns into the air to try to just scare them away. It didn't work. And the Indians could not figure out, because they knew the power of the gun. And they could not figure out why it was that they did not shoot them. And Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint could say, well, that's because Jesus laid down his life for us, and so they laid down their life for you. God had something bigger in mind than just saving the missionaries' lives. And then if you keep reading the story, that very tribe becomes missionaries to downriver tribes that they used to fight with and war with and kill. Did God know what he was doing? Yes. Did it feel like it in January of 1956? No. And we have to learn to trust when we pray that there's a God who really is good and who's smarter and wiser and bigger than we could ever imagine and who has something more in mind than we might have for ourselves. Smaller, less dramatic example than that one. Uh, Tim Keller, well-known preacher in New York City, says that when he was in college preparing for ministry, he met this girl, they started dating. She was perfect. She was definitely the one, right? It seemed like the Lord had brought them together. She was, had some of the same passions he did. It would be perfect for ministry. Um, and so he prayed, Lord, she's perfect for me. Thank you so much. Let her marry me. That was his prayer, because I can't imagine doing ministry without her. Um, a few days later, she breaks up with him. God, like that, What? And then in the course of time, he met his now wife, Kathy, and she was even more perfect for him. And Tim Keller says, what I learned out of that experience and I've learned repeatedly over the course of my walk with God is this, that God will answer our prayers and give us either what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. God will give us what we we asked for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. Do you believe that God is trustworthy? Do you believe he knows more than you? 
Do you believe that he's good? That he's good and wise? This is what we're dealing with when we talk about prayer. Prayer is not mechanical. It's not magic. It's not a vending machine. Prayer is personal. It's deeply, deeply relational. And God is inviting you and I into this relationship with him of prayer so that we could live as partners with him in extending his purposes in the world. And oftentimes, when God's not answering our prayers and then we're getting frustrated or cynical or discouraged or bitter, it's because we don't have the capacity to see what God does and we don't have the allegiance that Elijah had. We have the same nature as Elijah, ordinary human nature, but we may not have the allegiance that Elijah had which is the allegiance to God. And whatever God says is what I do. Whatever God wants, that's what I submit to. Um, that Eli- in fact, Elijah's very name. Do you know what Elijah the name means? It means Yahweh is God. His name embodied his ministry and his mission. And he lived it, Elijah did. And James is calling you and I to live the same way. Prayer is so deeply personal that we entrust ourselves to the living God and say, God, here's what I want more than anything else, but I trust you. I don't trust my wisdom. I don't trust what I want. I trust you. I don't even trust in prayer. I trust you. And I believe that you are wise and you are good. Man, that's it's easy to preach about, isn't it? but it's sometimes hard to walk through when you're going through painful things. But that's what God is inviting us into. This whole section that Kirk preached on last week and me this week, this whole section is, is James calling you and I to live every circumstance of our life in prayer. That we don't just have a prayer life, we live lives of prayer where everything is living in partnership with God and we're trusting him with our life. And today... Um, we're going to take communion. And it's perfect to take communion with this message and this passage because communion reminds us of the ultimate example of this posture of prayer where we ask God for what we want him to do and we know he can do it, but we know he might not do it, so we've got to trust him. Communion is a a perfect reminder of that because on the very night before Jesus was crucified and laid down his life for us, what did he do? He went into the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed because he knew what lay ahead. And in his heart of hearts, his deep human heart, he did not want to go through with what lay ahead of him. He did not want to give up his blood and his body for us. He knew it wasn't like in his human heart. He knew what it was going to cost. So he prays. What did he pray? Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Is there any way, God? Don't make me do this, God. Did God answer that prayer? Well, in one sense, no. Because Jesus still got crucified. Right? But Jesus, when he prayed, didn't just pray, take this cup from me. He prayed, not my will but yours be done. I trust you that you're wiser and better than I could ever imagine. So I trust you. And so Jesus entrusts his life to God. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was heard because of his piety. Heard in what sense? 
Well, God heard his prayer, didn't keep him from the cross, but God, in another sense, answered his prayer because God had something bigger and better in mind. And three days later, we know the story. We're going to celebrate it in just a couple weeks. God raised Jesus from the dead so that life could go to us and to the whole world. God knew what really was best. And Jesus knew that God was trustworthy. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the pattern. We pray. We pray believing what James wrote. That, that, that prayer can, can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, right? That, that God is able to answer our prayers and our prayers can accomplish much. We pray that. We swing for the fence if necessary. And we say, and yet, God, not my will, but yours be done. I know you can. I don't know if you will. I will trust you as I live my life in partnership with you. That's what James knew. That's why James prayed. And that's what James is calling you and I to do as well, to live in deep partnership with God and pray like that.